Hello, and welcome to Ghost in the Mirror. Thirteen mysterious tales, as told by the good people in the small Buckinghamshire village of Cedarminster. Part 2. Ghost Story Joan Stainwright shuffled the pages of neatly scripted A4 paper that she was holding in a carefully ordered pile, before placing them down on the table and at last allowing herself to take a sip from the half pint of sweet cider that was situated next to them. Opposite her, Diane Keel put her hands together, but on realising that no one else seemed to be about to clap, decided to play it safe and place them back down on her lap. Well, that was most uplifting, Joan, Lord Muldrow said. It's a shame, in a way, that we couldn't leave the story till last, as it would perhaps have made the journey home a little bit more bearable. Gosh, yes, Mary Bell interrupted. Do you remember last year when Ted finished the night off with that story about the owner of an antique shop who got all his stock by killing off pensioners? I was afraid to walk home and I certainly didn't get much sleep that night. He probably got his inspiration from watching you in the post office, Mary, Major Wright laughed. How do you get your hands on all those stamps, by the way? Mary Bell stuck her tongue out at the Major and giggled. Hey, you don't think he was trying to tell us something, do you? Edith Strong said. You know, that he was suspicious that someone was going to bump him off for his money, and so wrote the story to provide us with a clue to his murderer. Leave your sensationalist conspiracy theories for the local rag, Edith, Major Wright said. Wait, that might be more believable than it sounds. He loved writing his stories. What was the actual cause of his death in the end? Mary looked towards Dr Patrick Meadows, who was sat quietly reading through his notes. On realising that the attention had swung towards him, he placed his notes on his lap and cleared his throat. Usually I wouldn't discuss such matters, but it's public knowledge that he died from pneumonia brought on by a chest infection, or in other terms he died of old age. Yes, but were there any extenuating circumstances? That farm of his must have been worth a small fortune, and wasn't he holding up plans for more housing development on the south side of the village, Adrian? Why would you think that I'd know anything about that? I have absolutely no idea, Mary. Adrian's straw sounded hurt. Well, that's suspicious for a start, Major Wright interrupted. You've had a hand in all the other housing developments in this village. That will do everyone, Lord Muldrow said, raising his voice above the level of the general conversation. We need to get moving along or we'll still be here on Sunday morning. Arthur, could you kindly get us back on track? Arthur Moran straightened himself in his chair and took out a set of flashcards that up until then had been hidden away in his pocket. He was something of a local celebrity in the village. He'd written seven novels, all of which had gone on to become bestsellers. Their subjects had been varied, ranging from a 16th century whodunit to a modern-day paranormal romance. However, all contained his trademark winding plot lines and subplots with twists throughout that made them stand out from the usual populist fiction and kept his readers guessing to the last page. Before I tell my tale, I'd first of all like to apologise to Father Connell. Oh dear, the Reverend said softly. As you may or may not know, I'm not a religious man myself, but as I grow older I guess that I felt compared to explore my own mortality. However, when I've tried to look at religion objectively, I've become frustrated with the well-meaning people telling me that I need to have faith in God, when all I really want is evidence. Though I'm not singling out Anglicans here, Father, as far as I can see, faith is one repeating factor in all religions. I therefore wanted to explore what would happen if suddenly there was proof, but if perhaps the afterlife wasn't quite what everyone expected. I'll say no more now, but this is my tale which I've entitled Ghost Story.
Graham Hastings mashed the last few peas on his plate, gathered them up on his fork and finished off his chicken breast peas and potatoes in one last arid mouthful. He closed his eyes and considered for a moment, going over to the computer to sedate himself by focusing on his work. But he knew that he'd be doing that far too often of late. How on earth did he used to relax? Other than sleeping, he couldn't honestly remember. Inevitably, an image of the kitchen dresser popped into his head. With a sudden movement, he got up and let his feet lead him until, opening the top drawer, he pulled out the virgin bottle of whiskey that nestled neatly alongside the spare cutlery and placemats featuring seasonal pictures of the new forest. Graham turned the bottle over in his hand and marvelled at the clear, lolling gold liquid inside. It would be so easy to break open the cap and take a long, satisfying mouthful. Instead, he put the bottle back into the drawer and closed it, put a tea bag into a cup, flicked the switch on the kettle and, pulling open the middle drawer, took out a chocolate bar and placed it on the worktop next to the cup. The chimes of the doorbell startled him. Actually, he couldn't recollect the last time he'd heard it ring. It certainly wouldn't be any of the neighbours. This was a middle-to-upper-class neighbourhood, not the kind where you just leave the back door open in case someone wanted to borrow something whilst you were out. Graham poured the boiling water on top of the tea bag and took a bite from the chocolate bar, then walked over to the front door. Ah, good evening, sir, the older of two policemen said as Graham pulled the door open. Sorry to bother you at this time in the evening, but we're looking for a Dr. Graham Hastings. Graham took a step back and held his breath. His eyes widened and time seemed to slow as he attempted to make sense of his nightmare that had somehow escaped to play itself out once again in the physical world. Don't worry, there's nothing wrong, we're just here on police business, the policeman said, noticing Graham's reaction. May we come in? Graham put his hand to the cold, blanched face that had betrayed his thoughts and forced himself back into reality. Uh, yes, of course, come into the lounge and have a seat. He led the two men through his house and dutifully offered them both a drink, which they declined. Dr Hastings. The older policeman's voice was direct and businesslike. I understand you've done some work for the government in the past. Uh, yes, that's right. I've full security clearance for my time in the army. Is that the reason you're here? The policeman nodded. That's correct, sir. We've been directed by the MOD to pick you up and deliver you to their headquarters in Woking. Woking at this time in the evening? What on earth for? I'm afraid we don't have that information to hand, sir. Graham looked surprised, although he knew it could be only one thing. He'd been asked a few years back by one of his ex-colleagues in the medical corps to evaluate the captured leader of a terrorist cell. At first he declined, however his colleague had been very persuasive, stressing the fact that all other avenues had failed, and as an ex-army physician specialising in clinical psychology, he was possibly the one man in the country they could trust to gather some information about the man's organisation. He'd accepted, but with reservations. Up until that point he'd been working with ex-servicemen, who were trying to adapt back into civilian life after being under constant threat of death, and in some cases witnessing some terrible atrocities. Once he began, however, he soon started to realise that he could use the same calm, relaxed, methodical approach with the suspect as he did with his other patients. The man, of course, had said nothing, but Graham had realised that this was going to be the case before he even started. Instead, he'd played a game of cat and mouse. He'd adopted the persona of a civilian psychologist being asked to do a job that he wasn't quite capable of doing, but trying not to demonstrate any weakness. He'd asked the man appropriate questions, feeding him drips of information at certain times and other pieces of misinformation at other times.
He then judged the man's reaction by trawling through the video footage in great detail after each interview. In the end, it had been all too simple. The man had been intelligent but arrogant, and so Graham had just kept chipping away, interviewing him every day, without breaking character until the man had felt secure enough to let his guard down. After months of interviewing, it had come down to his gloating reaction to a few short sentences about a suspected block of flats in Gravesend that had led to the capture of the rest of the cell and the prevention of a planned attack in the city of London. OK, let me just put some suitable clothes on and I'll be right with you, Graham said, as he got up from his chair and headed out of the lounge and towards the stairs. Within ten minutes, Graham found himself once again dressed in his work suit that he discarded only a few hours earlier and sat in the back of a police car with its sirens blaring, weaving in and out of the London traffic. Within half an hour they'd arrived at the arm gates of the MOD complex. Graham had never been here before, but he'd heard about plans for the new purpose-built detainment facility just outside London when he was in the army. He'd wondered when the economy had plunged whether the MOD could justify the millions of taxpayers' money that was being spent on it, but the only view he'd ever read about it in the papers was that it was the necessary evil in today's current climate, and the downturn in the economy had only strengthened that need. The policeman stopped the car at the gates, leant over and had a word to the guard pointing to Graham as he did so. Graham noticed the sign showing the threat level. What had been the old bikini alert state when he'd been serving was still showing moderate, so he guessed that this wasn't about some imminent terrorist threat. The guard nodded, talked into his radio and the gates were opened. Once inside, Graham could understand where the money on the facility had been spent. The place looked like a large commercial estate with office blocks, and what looked like lecture theatres dotted around the place. The only difference was the large rugby field, and the two Harrier jump jets placed as welcoming statues by the entrance. The policeman parked the car in one of two large car parks as they entered, and the older one got out and motioned for Graham to follow him to what looked like to be the main guardhouse. The policeman knocked on the main door and it was instantly opened by a tall man with a mop of brown hair, sporting a navy blue suit who identified himself as Austin Reeves, before shaking Graham firmly by the hand. Graham recognised him. Not the man personally, but his type. They were fairly common in the British Army. He'd been from a well-off, if not downright wealthy family, educated at public school, and entered into Sandhurst to train as an officer. Like all officers, he'd naturally assume authority in any situation. He'd expect his opinions to be listened to. He'd have the intelligence that came with a good education and the affability of having lived a life without any real hardship. Ah, Dr Hastings, my apologies for calling you out so late. Reeves turned to the policeman. Thank you, officer, for bringing the doctor here safe and sound. You may go now. Graham nodded to the policeman who raised his eyebrows in response and returned back to the car park. Now you're probably wondering what all this is about. Police escorts and the such, I shouldn't wonder. Well, it had crossed my mind, Graham said, knowing that Reeves wouldn't recognise the sarcasm. Well, first things first, do you fancy a cup of tea? Graham thought back at the stewed cup with a tea bag that he'd started making before opening the door. Yes, I'd love one. I don't suppose you have any chocolate biscuits to go with them. Reeves smiled and moved his fringe away from his face so that he could get a better look at Graham. Will chocolate digestives do? Graham started to wonder if his first impression of Reeves was a bit harsh after all. The two men sat down clutching their mugs of hot tea in one hand and a chocolate biscuit in the other. 
Right then, let me get on and explain the problem we have here, Reeve said. It all started around a month ago. The Lane family were gathering around to say their final goodbyes to their son Darren, who'd had a motorbike accident the year before. This had unfortunately left him in a coma due to him suffering some rather severe injuries to the head. The doctors advised there was a negligible chance of him ever coming out of it, and even if he did he'd most certainly be in a vegetative state due to the amount of time he'd stopped breathing before the paramedics arrived. So they all shuffled around his bed and began one by one to say their last farewells, when the lad opened his eyes and asked how long he'd been asleep and what year it was. After the initial shock his family were obviously overjoyed, and some rather sheepish doctors proclaimed that this was indeed a medical miracle. However, the family's joy didn't last long. Over the next few weeks he was kept in hospital, mainly because the doctors wanted to keep an eye on him rather than any problems with his health. I believe, apart from being slightly weak due to the time he'd spent in a coma, there was nothing physically wrong with him. You mentioned physically. Do I take it then the accident had affected his mental state in some way? Well, let me first ask you a question, Dr Hastings. Have you ever heard of someone's personality totally changing after an accident? Graham thought through the cases that he dealt with, but despite some having severe mental problems, they all at least had retained their own identity. I've never personally dealt with it myself, but there are plenty of cases where after an injury to the brain the patient has changed in some way, yes. I heard there was a case about a year ago when after a stroke an 81-year-old man was able to speak fluent Welsh, despite never having learned the language. Another man claims that the brain injury turned him from an overweight beer-swilling rugby player to a slim-toned hairdresser who ditched his fiancée of several years to start going out with men. Well, in this case, Reeves continued, it wasn't just the man's personality that changed, but also his identity. At first, both the doctors and the family were accepting of it. After all, Darren had just come out of a long coma. Under the doctor's advice, his families took in pictures of him, with them over the years in an attempt to re-educate him as to who they were. However, it soon became clear that this wasn't just going to get better over time. Darren's whole personality had changed. Despite being a Londoner, he started talking with a slight Yorkshire accent, and despite never having smoked, he was given by request some rolling tobacco and papers, and started expertly rolling his own cigarettes. It was then that he informed his family that although he understood he used to be Darren Lane, Darren Lane had actually died and he was now Peter Campbell, a Sheffield miner who died in 1979 and had taken possession of the body after Darren had left it. Incredible, not only a change in personality, but a complete change of identity as well. That's correct. And so you want me to talk to Darren in an attempt to try and recover his original identity? I have to say it will be a long process with no guarantee of success. Reeves hesitated. Well, regaining Darren's identity would be the ideal situation, but that wasn't why we called you here. You see, the hospital's own psychiatrist talked to Darren in an attempt to do just that. However, not only did they fail, Darren was able to give such a convincing account of life in Sheffield, from just after the war to the late 70s, that the staff there decided to check the public records of births, marriages and deaths. They discovered that there was indeed a Peter Campbell who was born in 1933, worked in the Brookhouse Colliery for 27 years, and who died in 1979. In fact, Darren's story was so believable that his family stopped coming to visit, convinced that their son had indeed passed away, and this was now a completely different person. That must have been extremely difficult for them to do. Yes, but they were adamant that this was no longer their son. In fact, between you and me, I hear that they were quite eager to be rid of him. 
Really, well as pleased as I am to be called in to look at what appears to be a uniquely severe case, I'm struggling to understand why I've been rushed here, and why Darren isn't being looked after in a mental institution rather than a secure MOD facility. Reeves took another sip of his tea. Well, as Darren's family were convinced that this wasn't their son, the hospital decided to track down some relatives of this Peter Campbell to demonstrate this was merely a coincidence. They discovered that the man had no immediate family, but there was a cousin in his seventies who remembered Peter from when he was sent to stay with them during the war. Incredibly, Darren not only identified the man as soon as he came into the room, but was able to recount information about those times that only the cousin would have known about. Then, grasping for an explanation, one of the psychiatrists, who like yourself had served in the forces, started to think along the lines of some of the techniques that MI6 used to implant false memories into its agents out in the field. It's done to ensure they don't blow their cover under interrogation, and so we were contacted. I take it then that he's not working for MI6? No, well at least they're denying our knowledge of him. However, they were very interested when they heard about him. I think that their view is if he's not working for us, then he must be working for someone else. I see, so you want me to find out whether he's been recruited by another agency, and if so, who and why? That's about it. Of course, there is the possibility that this has been an incredible coincidence, so you'll need to tread lightly. Have you finished your tea? Graham drank the last few mouthfuls and put his cup down on the table. Right then, if you'd like to follow me, I'll introduce you to Darren. Reeves got up and led Graham out of the office, then back down the end of the corridor to a steel security door, which he swiped a pass hung round his neck against, in order for it to open. There's a vicar down there with him at the minute. Darren's family requested that he act on their behalf to make sure that he's looked after. Father Michael Randall, I think. He's an Anglican. Ah, that could complicate matters, Graham said. He might be unintentionally cementing Darren's newfound identity. What with talk of God and possession? Don't worry, Dr Hastings. From what I've seen of him, he's more of a liberal than some. Less hell and damnation, more coffee mornings and charity auctions, if you know what I mean. Graham noticed that they appeared to be making their way down quite a few sets of stairs. Certainly lower than the building's ground floor, anyway. Reeves flashed his pass into another door, which opened onto a large space that looked like a reception area with a desk, and a man in MOD uniform sat in front of a wall of monitors. Can I get you to sign your details into the computer for me, sir? The guard said to Graham as he approached the desk. This was unexpected, Graham said as he entered the details and obediently stared into the camera when the machine instructed him. Reeves smiled. Yes, this goes all the way under the camp. A lot of buildings above ground are purely for show. Most of them are hardly used. Once Graham received his pass, Reeves beckoned for him to follow him once again. Not much longer now. They zigzagged through a number of corridors until Reeves pushed open a door where a man in beige chinos, a white checkered shirt rolled up at the sleeves and a dog collar stood talking to one of the guards. Ah, speak of the devil, Reeves said. Dr Hastings, may I introduce you to Father Michael Randall? Father Randall tutted. Not the devil, surely, Austin. He shook Graham by the hand, looking deeply into his eyes as he did so. Do you have faith, Dr Hastings, he said. If Graham was surprised by the direct question, he didn't show it. He'd been asking himself the same question many times of late. No, he replied simply. And I know this will be difficult, but I strongly advise you to turn around now and go back home. Now hold on a minute, Father, Reeve said. 
We've asked Dr Hastings here to evaluate Darren. I'd prefer if he didn't drive him away before he even started. Graham raised a hand. As a psychologist, I'm interested in gathering as much background information about the patient as I can. Why do you recommend that I leave, Father? I apologise, Father Randall glanced across at Reeves. But after interviewing Darren, it's my opinion that, well, there's something going on that is very difficult to explain. I have my faith in God. But what this boy has said to me has made me want to ask myself some very difficult questions. I'd worry for any man talking to him that doesn't have faith to fall back on. I believe that you'll be walking in there defenceless. Graham felt like smiling, but instead nodded to show that he at least considered the priest's words. I'm sorry, Father, whilst I understand your intentions are good, you must realise that you're making this interview more compelling. Besides, whilst I don't have your faith in religion, I do have a faith in my profession, and of course in my own ability. Let's just hope that that's enough, Father Randall rummaged around in his pocket. Here's my number if you ever need to chat with someone. You can ring me any time. I'm a light sleeper. Graham took the piece of paper and smiled at the priest. He was a good man, Graham could see that, but he knew that if Father Randall had started questioning his faith, then that was a fault with religion. Come to realise that even when he'd been desperate to believe in God, in his own mind the idea of a supreme being just didn't sit right, and so he supposed that he would remain forever agnostic, wanting to believe but unwilling to blindly follow. Thank you, Father. If nothing else, it would be useful to compare notes after I'm done, Graham said. Father Randall looked as though he was about to say something, but thinking better of it, patted Graham's arm. Call me, he said again, before allowing himself to be led back out of the corridor. Right then, Dr Hastings, is there anything else you need from me before you proceed? Reeves said. Graham knew there was only so much preparation you can do for an interview of this kind. Most of the time you had to adapt your questioning depending on the responses given. No, I think that we're ready. I'd like to review the interview recordings afterwards, though. Of course, Doctor. We'll let you have access to the footage as soon as you're finished. This way, please. Graham was led through another set of doors to an area with a wooden table and chairs in the centre, and the far wall housed a large window onto the next room, where the thin figure of a young man in his twenties was sat staring into space. Two guards clothed in body armour and holding automatic weapons stood by the door. A brief search and you can go in, Reeves said, summoning over one of the guards. Is this all strictly necessary, Reeves? This man isn't a criminal, after all. It's standard cautionary procedure for all detainees. He's here and as such he's subject to the same practices as they are. I guess the reason you're here is to determine if he needs to remain or be moved somewhere else. Graham shrugged and let himself be searched by the guard. Right, you're free to go in then, Doctor, Reeves said once the guard had completed his search. Graham nodded, pushed open the door and entered the room. The man stared lazily at Graham as he moved towards the table. He had a mat of unkept brown hair and a scar running down the middle of his forehead, but apart from that he looked like your average student type. Even the thinness which Graham presumed was down to muscle wastage was fairly common for boys his age. Good evening, Graham said. Evening, the man replied. Aye, evening, yeah, of course. Good evening, Doctor. Do you mind if I sit down? Graham approached the chair. No, be my guest, the man gestured towards the chair in front of him. My name's Dr. Graham Hastings. I'm a psychologist and I've been asked to examine you. And your name is? Well, if you're here, I guess you already know what my name is. 
There was nothing in Darren's voice which sounded odd to Graham. It had a soft Yorkshire tone to it, but he knew that accents were easily adopted and dropped in a lifetime. Well, I believe it says on your birth certificate that you were born Darren Lane in 1987 and died in 2013, the man continued. Graham paused for a moment. He knew that confrontation wasn't going to work, especially in this situation. Look, if you don't mind, I'm going to call you Darren, because that's the name we have down for you officially. Is that okay? You can call me what you want, but my name's Pete, or Peter, I suppose, but I'll answer to anything. Okay, then. Well, I understand you had a number of professionals talk to you whilst you were in hospital. That's right. Smug gets every last one of them with their own university degrees. Thought they were so clever dropping compact discs and royal weddings into our conversation and expecting me to talk like I knew what they were going on about. I suppose that you'll do the same, although you might want to know that they've already had to explain them to me. Look, I have no intention of trying to trick you, Darren. Forget your experiences with the other doctors for now. I'm just here to evaluate you and tell the people here of my findings. It's as simple as that. The man's young face adopted a look of suspicion. I see. And how are you going to do that, then? Simple. I'm going to let you do the talking. If your story doesn't ring true, even if you believe that you're telling the truth, you'll slip up somewhere along the line. And if I am telling the truth, how long before you decide that? I won't put a time limit on it, but I'll know. Alright, it's a deal. But you might be here a while. So what do you want me to talk about? Well, let's start with a brief overview, shall we? You say you're from Sheffield, so I guess that would make you a Sheffield Wednesday fan? The man's face screwed up with disgust. No, of course not. I'm a Blades fan through and through. My dad used to take me down there on a Saturday when we were playing at home. I can even remember watching Jimmy Hagen score in 38, when we beat United to go up, even though we lost them in the derby. Hmm, I can't say I remember Jimmy Hagen. I remember Tony Curry from my younger days. Did you watch him play? Aye, he was good. Not as good as Jimmy, though. If it hadn't been for the war, you'd have heard of him all right. And your parents? What were they like? I can't tell you anything about me mum. She died giving birth to me, and me dad worked down the pits. I don't think dad really ever forgave me for mum's death. He didn't really hit me hard or anything. Just the occasional clip round the ear. But it was his attitude, you know. Cold. All right, then. Your dad, what was he like? I told you, cold. I didn't really get on with him that well anyway. He died during the war. So you became an orphan? Yep, he'd sent me to live with me aunt whilst he went away fighting. Then one day she sits me down and tells me he wasn't coming back. And she couldn't afford to keep me so I was going to the orphanage. How old were you then? Around nine or ten. I see. The orphanage then, what was that like? St Mary's. It was run by a religious lot. Thought that children needed discipline and lots of it. The war meant that they suddenly had more kids than they knew what to do with, because the government paid for each one they took in. There wasn't anything sinister going on, and I even think that they believed what they were doing was right. But again, there wasn't much love either. Graham was starting to wonder if this was the right method of approach with his questioning. By asking Darren to openly describe his past, he was possibly adding fuel to his new identity. He began to consider that perhaps he'd use this session to gather an understanding of Darren's problem, and think about a different, more structured style of questioning for further sessions. So, you didn't enjoy your time at the orphanage? Nope. Okay, well let's leave that for now. What about work? I believe you were a miner. That's right. The steel and coal mines were Sheffield's biggest employers. 
The Brookhouse Colliery had an arrangement with St Mary's. They would take on the kids when they got old enough to leave it. It was a good arrangement for both of them. The orphanage saw it as a way of keeping the kids industrious and away from temptation, and the colliery got cheap labour that was used to hard work. Of course, if there were any accidents, there wouldn't be any relatives asking questions either. When I started, we used to have to get in the pit and walk hunched over for miles underground before we even started digging. The man let out a smoker's laugh. And that was when they started the clock. You weren't allowed to work any longer than eight hours underground, so they make it so you started and finished your work at the coalface. That way, if any inspectors started poking their nose in, it was all legal. But the conditions got better over the years. Aye, the union saw to that. We had the largest, most powerful union in the country, with its membership full of hard grafters. We started to get some proper machinery to help us. When we go down to our shift, trams would take us to the coalface, and large conveyors would take the coal we chipped away back to the entrance. It was still a dangerous job, mind. I've seen my share of cave-ins, I can tell you, and not all of them had a happy ending, neither. And that's how you died, was it? An accident? You were, what, forty-six? Graham said softly. No, I was forty-five, a few months off my forty-sixth birthday. Not that I had any plan to celebrate it, but it would have been nice to have had the chance. The man laughed again. So how did you die? Heart attack, I guess. I just woke up in the night with a massive pain in my chest. I tried to shout out, but I couldn't even raise a whimper. Not that there was anyone to hear me, of course. So I lie there for a bit, wondering what to do next, when I felt an even greater pain than nothing. You were dead? Aye. Graham relaxed a bit. He managed to get past the Pete Campbell memories without adding too much detail to the illusion. He could now concentrate on talking Darren through the memories he'd had after the accident. Can you describe your feelings to me when you woke up in the hospital, with your family staring down at you? Don't you want to hear about when I passed over to the darkness, then? Graham raised an eyebrow. He hadn't considered that Darren would claim to have memories of after he died. Okay, then. Describe how you felt when your soul left your body. The man laughed again. Now you're sounding like that vicar. He shook his head. I forget how narrow everyone's view of death is here. People seem to blindly accept the word of a few arrogant fools who've no experience. It's a bit like me trying to tell you what the furthest planet from us in the universe looks like. Neither of us know for sure. If I make it sound fantastic enough and swear on an oath to you that I'm telling the truth, you'll probably believe me. Graham considered commenting, but instead decided to stay silent and let Darren continue. No, it's like all your experiences, your thoughts, your feelings, your instincts leak out into the darkness. You can't see anything? You have no eyes to see anything with. Not that eyes can see, they're just interpreters for our physical selves, only interested in the things that keep us alive but missing everything that's important. Of course, I was used to the dark. I'd been in mines when the power had failed, but there's something else. There's a knowledge that there are things out there, things that are aware of you. Things that see you as prey. Graham felt excitement rise in him. This was potentially at the centre of Darren's trauma. He knew that he had to choose his comments and questions very carefully. It sounds to me that you visited an interpretation of hell. The man made a throaty laugh again. Hell? Well, if a life of nothing but pain and honest hard work is enough to send you to hell, then I pity the politicians. Who knows what horrors they'll have to endure. Besides, like I said, I was used to the dark and so just waited. Waited for these things to make their move. Then as I waited I began to realise that I wasn't alone. 
I was surrounded by what used to be other people, with their experiences and knowledge, surrounded so completely that I got glimpses of their lives. Some of them had been as lonely and as dark as mine, but most had at least a few happy memories. I waited and it began to become clear to me why these creatures hadn't attacked. It was because they were already gorged. They were like mosquitoes bloated with the blood of their victims, waiting for their digestion to finish so they could have the pleasure of feeding once again. I, however, was the equivalent of a mangy dog. They weren't interested in my paltry existence, when there were so many more tasty lives on offer. Graham was unsure whether to move on from this, but he couldn't resist it. This was like delving into Darren's deep subconscious. There was something here, some clue as to how to bring Darren back. What do you mean these creatures feed on people's lives? That and on people's fears. The happier, more fulfilling your life was, the more hopeless you are in the dark. They delight in our knowledge that they're out there. We're nothing but food to them. They wait patiently as we're born, grow, mature, and are finally culled ready for them to eat. Graham marvelled at the extent of this delusion. This was going to take months, possibly years of study. Okay, then where do they come from? I remember once at school I told my religious education teacher that I thought we'd been put on earth by aliens rather than by God, and I'll never forget what he said to me. Well then, God must have created the aliens. So where did these creatures come from? The man looked frustrated with the question, and Graham became anxious that it had gone too far. Don't you realise to us they are gods? It's like a man whose ancestors once crawled out of the sea, casting his nets out into the ocean. They were once like us, but they evolved into beings that we can't even begin to contemplate. They allow us to live, to survive, in order that they themselves might feed and grow strong. Graham knew that as much as he longed to hear more, he had to calm Darren down for now, or risk entrenching Darren further into his fantasy. But you managed to escape from this... Well, this afterlife. And that's when you found yourself in hospital? The man sighed. I, I kept hold of my will, my identity. It would have been so easy to lose myself in the experiences of others, sharing their lives until I too was ready to be devoured. Instead I watched and waited, ready to seize upon any opportunity to escape. I began to realise that I could sense when someone had just died. I could feel that that was when their emotions were at their strongest, and so I formed a plan. As soon as I could sense something new, I'd will myself to them to try and fill in the void that they'd left behind. I had no idea if this would work, but what else was there to do? And that's when you awoke? That's right. I felt the strong sense of injustice of someone who's been taken too early, and I forced what was left of me towards it. It was a struggle and I thought I wasn't going to make it. A bit like swimming against a strong undercurrent, but I could feel I was close. I knew his body was still strong, could still survive even though he'd just left it. That's when I saw the boy's family crowding around me. His poor mother fainted on top of me when I opened my eyes. Graham pictured the scene. This poor lad's family so ecstatic that he'd been clutched from the jaws of death, only to be so convinced that it wasn't their son that they were willing to give him up again a few short weeks later. OK, I think that's enough for our first session. Graham sat up and clapped his hands on his legs. I'd just like to say a few things before I leave. You'll agree that I've listened to your story with an open mind, and I haven't tried to trick you in any way. The man looked at Graham. Aye, you've been better than all those other doctors, I guess. Well, I'd now like you to do the same for me. 
Will you listen to what I have to say without interrupting and even consider my words, even though you know that they're wrong? The man hesitated. I suppose so. Okay then. I believe that when you first came into hospital you were given morphine after being resuscitated and then went into a coma. Well, going into a coma is the body's way of shutting down all non-essential systems so that it can concentrate on fixing a problem. In your case, a severe injury to the head after a motorbike accident. Graham held his hand up when it looked as though the man was going to refute this. Therefore, your brain has had a massive shock and is trying to repair itself. It may be that you've latched onto something in your subconscious, perhaps. A conversation you once overheard, or even a programme you once watched on the telly. Your mind is trying to rebuild itself, to make sense of the memories within. It's the same as when you wake up from a vivid dream, with apparent random images only to realise that they're made up of lots of recent experiences, most of which didn't feel that important at the time. For example, the working in a coal mine or your existence in the darkness could represent your consciousness attempting to re-establish itself, but not being able to escape your comatose state and react with the outside world. Your body, however, eventually sensed your life was in danger, as your family agreed to turn other machines off that were keeping you alive. And you were forced back to the world, but perhaps a little earlier than was needed to complete the healing process. That then would explain the helplessness that you felt that these creatures which you sensed were out there, but couldn't see, were going to gradually drain all the life from you, until eventually there was nothing left. The man shook his head, but Graham interrupted him again, before he could say anything. I'm not saying that this explanation is the truth, any more than I'm saying that your explanation is wrong. It's just another interpretation that could fit what you've told me today. All I want you to do is to think about what I've said until my next visit, just as I'll think about your story. Agreed? The man nodded slowly. Okay, Doctor, you've been straight with me, so I'll do that. Good. Graham reached out a hand which the man accepted and held firmly. Catherine was there as well, you know the man said. Graham stiffened his hand, locked in an unbreakable grip. The man grinned. I knew who you were when you entered the room. I've spent countless hours in your memories. I've sat there with you watching the sun going down on that beach in Bali on your first holiday together. I've watched as you got down on one knee and proposed, first jokingly in that restaurant and then again a week later at that hastily arranged trip to New York. I was carried over the threshold to your new bedroom covered in rose petals. Graham tried to force his hand away, but there was something other than the force of a skinny young man that was keeping it held. I've comforted you at your father's funeral. I've listened to you go over your decision to leave the army. I've discussed with you when it would be best to start a family. And last of all, I lie there when the stranger stood over me, a look of horror on his face and blood on his hands, as he tried to give me some final last words of comfort after the accident. Graham could hear himself sobbing as he tried in vain to reclaim his hand. You know, Catherine had many, many happy memories with you. I doubt that she'd have had too long to wait to be devoured, Doctor. Do you? Graham barely noticed the guard rush into the room and force the man's hand out of his, pushing him back into his chair as he did so. He tried to clear his head, refocus his mind on what he'd just heard. How had he known about Catherine? Someone surely must have told him that his wife had died. I'm betting that you'll take a swig out of that bottle tonight, the man shouted out after him, as the door closed on his throaty laugh. Reeves looked at Graham sympathetically. I don't think we'll be needing you again, Doctor, he said quietly. Graham stood dazed for a moment, unsure of what had just happened.
What the hell's going on? He managed at last. Please calm down, Doctor, Reeves said in a soothing voice. If you're using me in some sort of military psychology test, I'll sue the MOD for every last drop of taxpayers' money it has. I assure you, Doctor, this isn't a test. Let me get you back to the office and I'll fill you in over a strong cup of sweet tea. Graham thought about demanding to be told now, but in truth he wanted to get away from the thin figure of the young boy who was still grinning at him out of the glass window. Firstly, I'd just like to apologise on not furnishing you with the full facts before the interview with Darren, Reeve said as he handed Graham his cup. You're not the first person to interview Darren. Yes, he was examined in hospital, but he's also been interrogated by five other top military psychologists, myself and, of course, Father Randall in this facility. Each time he's been able to identify someone close to them who's died and recount information about them that only they would know. I'm lucky to have both my parents still alive, but he was able to tell me things about spending Christmas with my grandparents that no one outside my family would have knowledge of. I see, so you decided to get someone in who's recently lost someone close to them to see if he could still perform the same trick, Graham said angrily. I can't deny that we knew about your wife, but that wasn't the reason you were asked here. Military intelligence wanted to make sure that this wasn't a game being played by some foreign enemy. Perhaps sending someone in with a deep knowledge of military personnel in order to gather further intelligence from the people who were doing the interviewing. Graham gave a hollow laugh. It sounds to me that military intelligence are suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. They're working in a very murky world, Doctor. They needed to get someone in who was a professional psychologist, security cleared but unlikely to be known by the enemy. And I was the lucky one. You fitted the bill perfectly. A model professional who had demonstrated his loyalty to his country but was no longer serving in the forces. Okay, so I was your guinea pig and he's demonstrated that he has all this knowledge. What now? He'll simply have to remain here for the rest of his life. That's a bit cruel, isn't it? If he's to be believed, he's already had one joyless life and now you're going to provide him with another one. What would you have us do with him? Let him walk the streets spreading his word about dead relatives and ethereal monsters? Besides, he's quite happy here. He says that he doesn't want to go anywhere or see anything. All he's asked for is a pen and some paper so that he can write a book on his experience and send out some letters to doctors and politicians, urging them to plough more money into research for increasing the longevity of life. Graham declined Reeves' offer of a lift home and walked out the pedestrian entrance of the complex towards the train station. The stars shone out brightly on what was now a clear night. He'd always wanted to believe in religion, in a god, in an afterlife, never more so than after Catherine's death. However, in his heart of hearts, he knew that he could never just believe. He was a practical man, a man of medicine. His whole life, his work, had been based on knowledge and proof. The trouble was that one way or another, he now had that proof, and as unappetizing as it was, he knew that it wasn't always what he wanted to hear. He guessed now why military intelligence was so eager to try and discredit Darren or Pete Campbell, or whoever he was. Not because they feared some foreign power, but because what they really feared was that he was actually telling the truth. Graham rummaged around in his pocket and found the card that he'd smugly stuck there after talking to Father Randall. He could ring him, but he knew the opinion the vicar would have, that this was the work of Satan to turn people like Graham away from God. He stared at the card containing the neatly printed telephone number, then scrunched it up and threw it into the bush. No, he got his evidence. It might not be what he wanted to hear, but it was something at least. 
so he could either bury his head in the sand and blindly accept religion as the answer, or he could do what he'd been doing all his life, investigate the problem more thoroughly with an aim to understanding it, and if needed provide a way of combating it. Perhaps this man had come back from the dead, perhaps he was a tool of Satan, or it could even still be some incredible elaborate intelligence plot by some foreign enemy. One thing Graham did know, however, was that he was never going to find out by running away. He stopped, then turned around and started walking back towards the MOD complex. Peter Campbell didn't know it yet, but he was about to get a full-time psychologist and biographer.